This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Yeah, there's a rumor going around that we've made some appearance in the local media. I don't know much about these. You heard about this, Mr. McMillan? We're going to have to look into this. If any of you folks know anything about this, drop us a line at info at Radio Parallax. As far as I know, that little misunderstanding I had some years back with Interpol did not get in the press. And we're going to tell that story at some point, but uh, suffice it to say, we did get a formal apology from the government of Uruguay. And yes, they did drop all of the charges. So ladies and gentlemen, let us begin this program as we like to do every week with On This Date in History. The date today is the 25th of February. It was on February 25th in 1870 that Hiram Rhodes Revels, a Republican from Mississippi, was sworn into the U.S. Senate, becoming the first African-American to sit in Congress. He was elected to fill the seat once held by Jefferson Davis, former president of the Confederacy. These reconstruction efforts uh, to advance the cause of blacks in America kind of got turned around with the election of 1876. The Republicans, in fact, stole that one and put Rutherford B. Hayes in the White House. But to seal the deal, the Democrats were allowed to take control of the Old South once again. And it was about a century before the Senate again saw a black man among the ranks. In this date in 1913, the 16th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which paved the path for the U.S. adoption of an income tax, was ratified. And yes, we've been paying income taxes ever since. On this date in 1949, American actor Robert Mitchum, star of classics such as Cape Fear and Night of the Hunter, was released after serving two months in a Los Angeles County prison for marijuana possession. The police meant the arrest to serve as a deterrent to other would-be pot smokers. This effort proved to be a smashing success. Marijuana disappeared from the scene on America and has never returned. And it was on February 25th in 1964, a date I'm sure many of you remember, that the American boxer Cassius Clay shocked the boxing world by defeating heavyweight champion Sonny Liston in a seventh round technical knockout. Clay had predicted victory, boasting that he would float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Despite being an 8-1 to one underdog, he made good on his claim, and two weeks after winning the championship, changed his name to Muhammad Ali and would become, in time, certainly the most famous face in the world. Our quote of the day comes from Philo Farnsworth, widely credited with inventing electronic television. Sometime in the late 50s, Mr. Farnsworth said to his son, referring to television, there's nothing on it worthwhile, and we're not going to watch it in this household. We did a show on Philo Farnsworth back in May of 06, and we'd refer you to our archives. Show number 204, we spoke with our good pal, Dr. Andy Jones. We discussed uh, the excellent book, The Last Lone Inventor, A Tale of Genius, Deceit, and the Birth of Television by Evan I. Schwartz. And speaking of television, we have our quip of the day from Conan O'Brien, who said in January, When I was a little boy, I remember watching The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and thinking, someday I'm going to host that show for seven months. 
Our stat of the day is that according to the New York Times, to satisfy the exploding worldwide electricity demand caused by flat screen TVs, game consoles, personal computers, and other gadgets, nations are going to have to build the equivalent of 560 coal-fired power plants or 230 nuclear plants over the next two decades. And if you're keeping score, the average American now owns 25 electronic products. I think for our joke of the day, we're going to recycle our favorite joke of last year, which was as follows. A man's driving in his car when he sees a sign in front of a house that says, Talking Dog for Sale. Unable to resist, he stops, pulls over, knocks on the door. Guy answers and he says, You have a talking dog? I said, Yes, I do. He's out in the back. You want to check it out? Guy goes out in the back, sees a Labrador retriever, looks at the dog and says, You talk. Dog goes, Yeah, yeah, sure do. Guy goes, What's the story? Just had this ability, of course, you know, and the CIA, of course, heard about this, and who'd imagine a dog could eavesdrop? They posted me to numerous foreign embassies. I was able to uh, sort of listen in and break up quite a few espionage rings. Got to say, I won a few medals for those. Guy says, how'd you wind up here? Dog says, well, I got tired of all the jet setting. You know, I wanted something a little more quiet. So I took a job here at the airport. Again, I went undercover and I was able to, uh, you know, infiltrate a few smuggling rings, got those busted up, got a few more medals. But now I'm tired. I'm just going to sit back, raise my pups and, you know, relax. The man's astonished. He walks back in the house, says, how much you want for the dog? Guy looks at him and says, 50 bucks. He goes, 50 bucks? Why so cheap? The guy leans in and says, hey, listen, man, that dog is so full of it. He never did half of that stuff. to the feature we like to do every week on this program. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Going into the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for The Paranoid. After the Virginia House of Delegates voted to make it illegal to implant microchips in people without their permission. Republican delegate Mark Cole said chips might someday be used as, quote, the mark of the beast, unquote, described in the Book of Revelations. The Georgia Senate has recently passed a similar ban. While we don't agree with their reasoning such as it is, we think having restrictions on microchips being implanted inside of you might be a pretty reasonable idea. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for inclusiveness. A few weeks back when it was revealed that Robert Hintz, the founder of the dating site BeautifulPeople.com, kicked off 5,000 members for having gained weight during the holidays. I love Mr. Hines' quote about this. He said, letting fatties roam the site is a direct threat to our business model. So be advised, if you're thinking about joining beautifulpeople.com, it's a tough crowd. Finally, it was an ugly week for capitalism. Last week, when it was revealed that Russia plans to jack up its price for ferrying American astronauts to the International Space Station. 
NASA, of course, is retiring the space shuttle at the end of this year and is now going to have to rely on the Russian Soyuz rockets for transport for at least the next seven years until new shuttles are built. Under the current contract, NASA pays $51 million per astronaut ferried, a price far higher than the $35 million Russia charges private space tourists. Said Russian Space Agency Chief Anatoly Permanov, once Russia has a monopoly on transport, quote, Excuse me, but the prices should be absolutely different then, end quote. And I guess monopolies are monopolies, whether they're on uh, the capitalist side of things or the socialist side of things. All right, from the Only in America file, we have two items. Apparently earlier this month, the U.S. Missile Defense Agency announced that it had finally shot down a moving missile with an airborne laser. But military experts have pointed out that the system, once known as Star Wars, is not good enough for combat. It's because it only works if it gets within a few hundred kilometers of a missile less than two minutes after it's launched. And we love this item. Apparently an Illinois woman is suing a hospital for giving her the wrong baby to breastfeed. Jennifer Spiegel, age 33, said a nurse handed her a child at 4 a.m. and told her, your baby wants you. She was breastfeeding when another nurse said, the baby you're feeding isn't yours. Spengler now says this mistake gave her an awful internal feeling, which is why she's seeking $30,000 in compensation. We ask you, does that sound like a $30,000 mistake? And we were kind of tickled to see a follow-up item on a news story we mentioned in passing a long time ago on this program. The effort by U.S. spies to use the Howard Hughes company as a front to retrieve a Soviet sub off the bottom of the Pacific. Although this happened in 1974, the project has remained shrouded in mystery ever since. But it looks as though Washington is finally owning up to Project Azorian in the wake of private researchers from the National Security Archive who used the Freedom of Information Act to achieve a declassification of at least some documents. What got released was a 50-page article from the fall 85 edition of Studies in Intelligence, which is the CIA's in-house journal that, as you might imagine, outsiders rarely get to see. In the article, the uh, agency described in chronological detail a mission of staggering expense and improbable engineering that culminated in retrieving a portion of the Soviet's K-129 submarine. The article by Calvin Woodward, reprinted in the Sacramento Bee, noted that despite the declassified article, the greatest mysteries of Project Azorian remain buried three miles down. Now, we mentioned in this program that the ship that did this recovery, the Glomar Explorer, used to be uh, visible right near the Benicia Bridge, where the Liberty ships are moored. When I used to have a boat, I, uh, I screwed it up right alongside of it and took a look at it. It was a very strange-looking vessel. And apparently a few years back, it quietly pulled anchor and disappeared. <laughs> Where it is now, I don't have the foggiest. The cover story in this operation was broken back in 1975 by Seymour Hersh, then of the New York Times, and columnist Jack Anderson. And although 35 years have passed, we still don't know the whole story. But uh, maybe we will one day, and it's a topic we may want to want to revisit. And speaking of hush-hush operations, we have one item... Uh, from the news much closer to home, we thought we'd comment on. Article and editorial in the Sacramento Bee lately talking about the fact that some folks think that the American River Parkway is their private property. Apparently there's been quite a spate of what's described as vandalism lately. 
but uh, not the kind you might expect from, say, a homeless encampment. This comes from folks who live near the river and want a better view. Apparently back in 1992, a well-known developer in the Sacramento area had to reimburse the county $4,000 to replant 140 cottonwood and willow trees in a 100 by 150 foot swath of land that they had their gardeners clear between their home and the river. Part of the story I like, apparently the, the woman of the couple was an active member and fundraiser for the Sacramento Tree Foundation. She got a good deal on the replanting. First, the bee noted somewhat suspiciously that here in 2010, there's been a cut again, and my, go- my goodness, it's an area 30 by 150 yards in front of these same folks' home. Anyway, the public is being asked to, uh, to watch this area. Of course, there's a bike trail uh, through the American River Parkway. That's one reason a lot of us uh, like to live in Sacramento. And yes, we hope if you do see some illegal tree cutting, you will report it. And of course, rivers frequently make the news out here in California and on this program because there's currently an effort to steal as much water from Northern California as people possibly can and, sh- and ship it south. In fact, in my hand right now, I've got an article from the Sacramento News and Review, an article from the San Francisco Chronicle, an article from the Sacramento Bee, an article from The Economist magazine. All about uh, the battle in California over water. We've been asking the question on this program for some time now, a question we don't know the answer to about how much water you imagine might evaporate out of our peripheral canal before it gets to where it's supposed to be. We keep asking aloud in this program, wouldn't it be smarter to put the water into a pipeline? Matt Weiser for the Sacramento Bee has been covering this story for some time, and he noted uh, last week that a giant tunnel, not a canal, has now emerged as the leading option to ship Sacramento River water across the delta to thirsty Californians south. Matt's doing a pretty good job. We've had him on the show before, and we hope we'll uh, bring him on again to talk about some of this. We also need to speak to Alastair Bland. He's got an excellent article in the News and Review about this matter of the peripheral canal. To quote from Alastair's article, The three-year public process that could lead to construction of the controversial peripheral canal connecting the Sacramento River and Delta to Southern California has been steered by private interests and campaign contributions, claim conservation groups opposed to the watery delivery system. The Delta Vision Blue Ribbon Task Force was launched by Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger in September 2006 as a tool for creating a sustainable long-term water management program for the Sacramento-San Joaquin River systems. And quotes Barbara Berrigan-Paria, described as campaign director with Resource the Delta, a conservation group in Stockton, saying that the task force ignored a great deal of the recommendations of the stakeholder group. The state just ran this whole process to make it appear like the public had input, but they really didn't listen to the public. I think it was pre-calculated by the government. Noted in reading the article that Monica Florian sat on the Delta Vision Blue Ribbon Task Force. She'd previously served as a senior vice president for the Irvine Company from 1978 to 2004, during which time the real estate firm publicly supported the building of the peripheral canal. That was back in 1982. What's being described as a dual conveyance system has advanced a step closer to reality last November when our California state legislature approved an $11 million water bond to fund the water project. This package goes to the ballot in November. It was assembled largely through the efforts of Senate President Pro Tem Daryl Steinberg. It appears the water interests have gotten uh, a new political ally in the form of Senator Dianne Feinstein. 
He apparently had a hearing, a week-long hearing last January with the National Academy of Sciences here in Davis, where expert witnesses testified that continued water curtailments were unnecessary. But UC Davis Fisheries biologist Dr. Peter Moyle is skeptical about any benefits a canal might provide for the Delta ecosystem. The dual conveyance system, he said, would likely destroy any remaining fisheries. We will continue to follow this story, but uh, the basic punchline here is this is being sold as a way of improving the fisheries and improving the state of our delta here in California. However, we've noted that no one, but no one, has been able to explain how you can improve the delta by taking more water out of it. Or you, how you can improve the fisheries by taking more water out of the rivers the fish live in. If you can explain how this can be done, we'd like to hear from you. So drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We also should mention that any opinions you hear on this program do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regions of the University of California. We do note that a study by the RAND Corporation did reveal that we appear to be right about 98% of the time. Joining us now, as he usually does every week, is America's foremost political comic, Mr. Will Durst. Well, thanks, Doug. And today I'm here to offer up my most sincere wishes that Dick Cheney has a full and speedy recovery from his recent indisposition. And I mean it. Just like St. George needed a live dragon to save the princess, so the left needs a living, breathing prince of darkness to save its sanity. And it's best for all concerned that he remains vertical so they can slay him over and over and over again. Now, for those of you glued to the tube, agape at the fascinating spectacle that is women's curling, let me explain what up. The pro-torture wing of George W. Bush's executive branch was recently hospitalized with his fifth heart attack, prompting the least magnanimous of you to ask, how does a man without a heart keep having heart attacks? It's like hearing that Glenn Beck had contracted a brain tumor. It does make you wonder if doctors have fully investigated whether there is some sort of phantom limb syndrome going on here. The most cynical amongst us might observe that the man is so evil that Satan keeps throwing him back. Five? Are you allowed to have five? Isn't that a little selfish? I mean, some people never have any. Maybe he just wanted to match up his cardio incidents with his Vietnam deferments. The trip to the hospital capped off a busy week for the Wyoming snake charmer, coming on the heels of a surprise appearance at the CPAC convention in D.C., in which he sneeringly predicted that Barack Obama is destined to be a one-term president, equaling the odds of Mr. Cheney himself living long enough to become more than a one-term former vice president. So I'm thinking he might want to cool down those rabble-rousings at conservative conventions, since they seem to encourage his heart to seize up. Take it easy, big dick. God, you know what they say. Six times the charm. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. Always a pleasure to hear from Will. All right, let's see if we can take a short break and take a look back at uh, some things we've done over the past few years. We expect that quite a few of this week are going to be new listeners to the program, and we'd like to familiarize you with what we do. So stay tuned for that. You are listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. 